And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal, the full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Well, we continue through earnings week. And as, uh, well, things keep going along, markets have been responding accordingly. Last couple of days here, you know, had a nice rally after Monday. Sell-off markets are back to positive for the week, just barely, but back to positive for the week. So, uh, not, you know, whatever happened on money, I don't know. You know, it was all about the COVID variant on Monday. Apparently, the Delta variant is a problem on Monday. On Tuesday, not so much a problem. So, I'm not sure what's going on here, but I will tell you a couple of things. <laughs> Marcus did have a nice little rally yesterday again just kind of adding back to this after successfully testing the 50-day moving average again uh, this has been kind of a consistent meme of the markets we've talked about this previously is that 50-day moving average has continued to provide just really good support here since November um, this has been just a, a steady trend higher along the 50-day moving average and importantly you know it's it's rare that you see both the 50-day and the 200-day uh, moving average at such perfect kind of parallel sloping lines. I mean, it's just it's, it's kind of a very weird uh, period in the markets in terms of the advance of the markets, how it's been structured. And again, not surprising here, you know, $120 billion a month. This will this is what you'll get uh, from a lot of QE being put into the markets. Interestingly enough, our good friend Miss Shedlock just wrote an article yesterday talking about how the House of Lords in the UK are now becoming concerned over an addiction to QE, right? Um, can't seem to get off of it. We just keep needing more of it. And uh, again, you know, we used to do 50 billion a month in QE, and then it was 80 billion a month in QE. Now it's 120 billion dollars a month in QE, and we're not really getting much more out of it, right? This is something that we've written about in the past, talking about the efficacy of monetary interventions. And what that means is, is that it takes more and more and more QE to get the same amount of return. It's kind of, and, and again, kind of. You know, with the UK talking about an addiction to QE, it's much like a drug addict, right? You know, initially, you know, it takes a very small amount of drugs to get the high, right? And then as you get more and more adopted to taking drugs, it takes more and more of it to get the same effect out of it. And that's exactly what's happening with markets, right? It's taking more and more QE to create the same amount of effect in the markets with investors and with prices. So, this is a problem ultimately because again while the federal reserve says hey we have unlimited ability to qe that's true you do have unlimited ability to qe except that you are limited by the amount of debt issuance so as long as we're issuing debt out the wazoo to you know to do all these kind of social mending uh, social spending programs that we want to do you know the the Fed's got kind of some free reign here to do more QE. The problem, though, is, is that the Fed can't own the entirety of the Treasury market. And again, because you do need a functioning Treasury market in order for the economy to work, because Treasuries pretty much back up everything that you do, whether it's credit card debt or whether it's housing debt or auto debt. Back there somewhere, there's some Treasuries sitting there off, offsetting those, those loans that are sitting out. So again, you've got to have a functioning Treasury market, which means there is a limitation to what the Fed can do in terms of QE. So there is a point 
to where the Fed is going to be put into a position of having to taper QE whether they want to or not. So again, this is not something that happens today or next week or next month, so don't worry about it, but just kind of letting you know that eventually this is going to become a problem uh, for markets and of course with valuations at extreme levels and with you know kind of what's happening with the allocation of individuals now you know allocations of individuals are more heavily invested in equities now than at any other point in history even more so than 1999 so again you know when the reversion happens um, eventually and again it could be 20 years from now, so don't go out selling stuff because, well, it said there's a reversion coming. Um, no, eventually when it does happen, it will devastate a lot of people because, again, there's so many more people now that have now chasing into this market because of this kind of this idea that it's, it's a no risk proposition, right? So I can just put money in markets and it'll go up and I'll make money. It'll be fine. And again, there's nothing wrong with this in the near term. So again, we, uh, as we've been talking about, we want to participate. We want to do it. And it's just always the question about how do we do this safely and, and talking about how to do things, you know, professionally so that as you do go forward, you can mitigate some of that risk. Now, uh, let's go through a couple other markets here this morning. Uh, well, one thing we talked about over the course of the past couple of days is the NASDAQ. Um, it's still very extended above its longer term moving averages, and it is beginning to underperform here relative to the S&P, not by a large amount but by some. And we did see initially some of that rotation yesterday, and, and particularly we'll probably see this again today, that rotation kind of out of these major tech names back into some of the other areas of the markets. In fact, you know, when we start taking a, a look at things like emerging markets and some of these other areas, nice couple of trading days over the last couple of days for emerging markets, really kind of coming off their 200-day moving average, getting a little bit of buying opportunity. Now, the one thing here, though, is to be very cautious is that when we do talk about these issues is that the volume on this rally over the last couple of days has been declining rather sharply. We had a lot of volume on the sell-off day, not surprising. The last two days of, these, of this kind of buying the dip rally have been on declining levels of volume in the market. Still good that the market's bounced off that support at the 50-day moving average, but the participation in that rally has been fairly weak. And the uh, TLT, uh, our, our proxy kind of for bonds, has also dropped back to the 200-day moving average and held that support yesterday. So that was a really good key test for rates and for bonds, suggesting that hey, bonds did get a little bit ahead of themselves in the short term, but that pullback yesterday actually put it right back on support. We actually added some, some bonds to our portfolio uh, yesterday just as a risk hedge, and we increased our duration to our bonds a bit to hedge against risk. Because again, as we start moving into August, that's really where the big concern comes up for a larger correction in the markets. Again, this little correction we had on Monday, it was about a 3% correction peak to trough. Not really enough to reduce the kind of overbought stretch conditions of the markets. And again, there's still just a lot of exuberance here at this point. So again, that's when we still consider that August and September are, are likely our best opportunities to have a bit deeper correction here, which will give us a better buying opportunity to put some capital to work into the markets. Um, functionally for the last half of the year. Remember, uh, October, November, December, those tend to be the best months of the year as we get ready to kind of wrap up the year, a lot of positioning for that. So again, not surprisingly, we may see a little bit of a correction here process, a correction process here coming up in the next month or two. That will be a much better opportunity to try to put some capital to work than trying to do it right now, right here with markets so close to highs. Valuation still very extended and earnings are gonna be a little bit under pressure 
over the course of the next couple of quarters. We've talked about how uh, we're going to start to see earnings revise down. That's already occurring. If we go back and look at where estimates were at the beginning of this year, the long end of those estimate curves are already coming down. We're already starting to see those estimates drop. Um, and we're likely to see more of that occur as we get into the latter part of this year as economic growth continues to slow. Because again, that's one thing that treasuries continue to tell us, interest rates continue to tell us that economic growth is gonna be weaker than expected. Okay, today on uh, the show though, we've got uh, Mike, um, Michael Leibowitz joining me, drew, drew a quick blank. Um, we're gonna be talking a little bit about a recent interview on PBS about the Fed and some comments, things that we've been writing about and talking about uh, with the Fed over the course of the last few years. You know, Mike joins me every Thursday. We talk about Fed. Um, you know, it's amazing. This whole interview on PBS actually just conferred all of our commentary, just basically provided the evidence for it. So we're going to go through some of that today, talk some more about it. Stick around. More of that coming up right after the break. I'm Harold Lance Roberts right here for The Real Investment Show. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Declare your financial independence. Our next candid coffee can liberate you from the stale rules touted by mainstream financial media. Know the enemies of your wealth and fight them on your terms. We'll arm you with the information you need at our next candid coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff. Saturday, July 24th. Register now at Real Investment advice.com the financial independence candid coffee with ratliff and rosso real investment advice.com the real investment show baby shot baby shot baby shot baby and welcome to Toast Morning at 617 Michael Leibwich joining me uh just headline right now coming across Crocs yeah those shoes that have built-in sport mode <laughs> just beat revenue 641 million for the quarter over 575 million in estimates and uh, that is solely attributable to my wife she has been buying crocs lately and giving them out to all of her friends because now they've done this new thing now where you can buy a crocs you know they have the holes all in them they now make accessories that you can then pin on the top of your crocs like letters so you can put your name across the top of your crocs if you want so they're getting ingenious about this crocs <laughs> was effectively bankrupt at one point and they've made a recovery so good for crocs um speaking of crocs and a bunch of it um <laughs> michael leewood joins me this morning <laughs> uh lance you beat me to it <laughs> so a couple of things this morning uh, we've got to get into. Uh, Federal Reserve, of course, is something that we've talked about, you know, on a regular basis here for quite some time. And, and Mike and I have written numerous articles about this. We've talked about, you know, the Federal Reserve, the effectiveness of QE, what QE is, what it does to markets. And very interestingly, there was a a, a report on PBS. It was a, a a show talking about the QE, and they interviewed a bunch of people, uh, Richard Fisher, Elarian, uh, Stiglitz, uh, you know, the, the list goes on and on, just, you know, some very influential people outside of just me and Mike, right? Me and Mike have no influence, but we talk about this, but it was interesting that 
PBS did this in kind of this investigative endeavor into QE and what the Fed is doing. And, and it just confirmed a lot of what we've been talking about. So, Mike, what did you find so fascinating about this whole thing? It was just from top to bottom. It was a great summary of things we have been writing about for five years. But like I told you, Lance, after I watched it, I called Lance. I'm like, Lance, you got to watch this. It's amazing. It's a uh, PBS frontline. Uh, it's called the power of the Fed. And if you just Google uh, frontline power or Fed, frontline Fed, you'll find it pretty easily. Uh, and it and what I said to Lance was, it's not coming from two schmoes like us. This is coming from Federal Reserve, ex-Federal Reserve officials, largest portfolio manager in the world, uh, Nobel laureates, you know, some very distinguished people. And it probably carries a little more weight, but the message is exactly the same. And, you know, the, the interview goes through many what the Fed has done, especially since the financial crisis and what it's done, its consequences. And, and it just does it in such a it's like a 50 minute video. And it's just an incredible summary of all the things that not only we've been writing about, but things that really worry us and scare us about the future. Right. So, well, and again, this is all stuff that we know. For instance, Lear, let's let's we can get it. We've got some clips for you today from from that actual interview. And you know, the one thing we were just talking about here this morning, right? The markets just had this excellent run up here over the course, and, and and a very kind of unusual advance in the markets, right? I've never seen a period in history where moving averages become parallel with each other. And it's just a, a very smooth rise in the markets. But this is part of that easy money effect. And this is actually something in clip one that um, we heard from uh, Richard Fisher. We saw it take its effect almost immediately. The market reacted. I was a little bit surprised it took off that fast. How was that viewed inside of the boardroom? Was that seen as success? Yes. It validated what, what we thought would happen. That's what we thought would happen. When you drive interest rates down all the way out, it forces investors into taking bigger steps on the risk spectrum. Cheap money is the fuel for a financial speculator and for a financial investor. And that's right. Cheap money is fuel for investors. And, it, you know, QE worked well. Uh, QE won when we initially did it. And as he was talking about, we saw money come into the markets. We saw people start chasing stocks. And then the problem was is that over time, we then created this Pavlovian effect about it. People started figuring out that, oh, when the Fed does QE, that's easy money. That means buy stocks. And here in our fourth iteration, we've seen that really kind of go to an extreme, right, Mike? Right. And what's interesting is, is that the Fed has denied up and down almost every single Fed speaker that the Fed affects financial markets. Mm -hmm. Yet here you have, you know, a Fed official up until, what, a few years ago from the right. Dallas Fed telling you exactly what they were thinking in a boardroom. And they were they were pleasantly surprised at how they boosted markets, financial <laughs> markets, stock markets. So the next clip, Lance, mm -hmm. talks about that. It's Mohamed El Arian, who was the, the fixed income manager at PIMCO, the world's largest bond fund uh, at the time. It may be BlackRock now, but at the time, the world's largest portfolio manager. 
And he hints at the success of the markets, but how that didn't trickle down right. into the economy. Right. So and, and this that, clip and, too. And, right, right. And, but that's the whole premise about you know what the Fed keeps telling us, right, is that this is about helping boost the economy. Because if we right. increase consumer confidence, they're going to go out and buy more stuff, and that's going to create stronger economic growth. But that didn't really ever happen. Here's uh, Mohamed El Arian. That was the theory. In practice, the Fed was very successful in terms of moving asset prices. It was much less successful in moving the economy. And the result of that is we got the largest disconnect ever between Main Street and Wall Street, between the economy and finance. And this is an interesting point. You know, this this whole idea that it was going to boost economic growth never occurred. And you know, what we wound up with was something entirely different. We did get, you know, this massive boost in terms of, you know, the financial markets, but that never really triggered down into economic growth, right? Right. And, and you know, where this kind of leads is not only so it boosts the stock markets, it doesn't create economic growth, but what it does create are consequences. And the the whole... 50-minute show goes into the consequences of QE and the prices that we are paying and will be paying. Mm -hmm. And it's probably worth reviewing. There, uh, we pulled out a few clips from that because the consequences are what we live with, what we have to deal with as investors in the future. So, you know, why don't we start with a Nobel laureate, uh, Joseph Stiglitz, and he's, he addresses that it like like we just heard from Mel Arian that it doesn't help the economy but it has an effect on wealth inequality the main thing I was concerned about was that the way they were trying to revive the economy was a kind of trickle-down economics the way quantitative easing works is that it's a lowering of the interest rates that leads stocks to go up and so who owns the stocks it's the people in the top, not just the top 10%, 1%, one-tenth of 1%. And so it increases enormously wealth inequality. We had had increasing inequality really since uh, the late 70s. And this was putting that on steroids. So the immediate objective of saving the banking system uh, was achieved. But the broader objective, which was helping the economy recover quickly in a robust way, in a way with shared prosperity, total failure. He said that, you know, we save the banking, you know, the, the banking system, right? And and did we really save the banking system? I mean, because the only banks that were in, in you know, potential risk of failure were the major banks and the smaller banks that didn't get any help from the Fed did fail. Um, but you know we didn't we didn't actually make the banking system any better right um you know this is one of the things that we've talked about repeatedly is that if the you know we just go through these fed stress tests right and we just went through another series of them and the banks are you know they're healthier than ever they have more capital and we put them to a stress test and said that if the economy drops by x and employment is y they're going to be fine well we go through these stress tests every year. We've been doing those stress tests since 2008 or 2009, sorry. And, and every year they pass these stress tests, but yet every time we have a downturn in the markets, we have to go bail out the markets in the economy again, primarily, quote unquote, we're bailing out the banks. 
Um, so, you know, we, we haven't really fixed the system. We've made it worse because now we've consolidated the banking system into five major banks. Primarily, they own about 60% of the entire banking sector, uh, which has forced out smaller banks from being able to participate in that business and diversifying our banking system and making it stronger structurally through a diversification of our banking system through the economy. Um, Jamie Dimon just yesterday um, just awarded himself <laughs> a eight-figure bonus uh, to hang around and remain CEO and chairman of J.P. Morgan for the next few years. So, you know, great, great for him because he knows that if he gets in trouble, he's going to get bailed out by the by the Fed again, right? Yeah, I mean that's the game, right? That they're bailing out the big boys. They made the top five banks a much larger percentage of the banking system, so you further concentrated risk. Right. I, I, do you remember, Lance, back in 2008? I think it was every I think it was every Friday afternoon, the FDIC would announce bank failures. Right. And they would put out a message. And there were always at a minimum, a few, sometimes five to ten banks and banks you've never heard of, right. like Fifth National Bank of Omaha, like, <laughs> you know, relatively small banks. Every once in a while, there was a mid-sized bank in there that were failing. They weren't the beneficiaries of the Fed. Right. And when they failed, they would get bought out by larger banks. And even the larger banks were buying out the large banks. Yeah. And, and we end up in a oh, yeah. system that's very risky now. Exactly. Quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about wealth inequality and uh, get into some more clips here from this PBS missive. Um, and that's really kind of one of the points Stiglitz was talking about was this concentration of wealth. And that's really kind of the point that we've talked about here recently on the show. We've written articles about it as well, but it's also the reason for the political instability that we have in our economy right now as well is primarily driven by the wealth inequality. Be right back after the break with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. listening to The Real Investment Show. Declare your financial independence. Our next candid coffee can liberate you from the stale rules touted by mainstream financial media. Know the enemies of your wealth and fight them on your terms. We'll arm you with the information you need at our next candid coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff, Saturday, July 24th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Financial Independence Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Everybody get up! And welcome back to this show this morning. Michael Leibowitz joining me this morning as well, talking a little bit about a recent PBS uh, article on PBS Frontline uh, video talking about the Fed, QE, and the results of this. And again, something that Mike and I have been writing about, talking about for a long time, that you know what we're told in the media about QE isn't the way that it really works. And the consequences um, have not been great. And one of this is, of, of course, is the social unrest and you know, we've written articles about this as well, is that if you take a look around the country right now, lots of social unrest, and we blame it on politics, we blame it on, you know, racism, we're blaming it on a whole variety of things. But really, those are just the the the, the tentacles that people have grabbed onto to try to justify their position. But it's, it's because they really don't understand or, or they don't 
if they can't clarify what the real problem is. And when you get down into the to the very bottom of this psychologically, is that wealth inequality, when people are struggling to make ends meet, they get frustrated and they start lashing out, they don't really understand the 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 overall dynamics and the driver of why they're upset and why they're mad. But, you know, we can drive all this back down ultimately into wealth inequality. And this happens throughout history. This isn't something new. You know, uh, citizens have rioted against governments and the wealthy um, for for centuries. Right. And there's 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 consequences for wealth inequality and there's consequences for tyranny and these type of things that occur. And eventually people began to lash back. And that's what we've been seeing here over the last several years, is, and particularly because of what the Fed is doing and because of the dynamics of how QE works and the drivers of QE, it's created a massive wealth disparity, particularly not just between the top 10% and the next 40%, but primarily between the top 10% and the bottom 50% who have seen no wealth increase at all over the last decade. And that's real, and of course, cost of living keeps going up, and that's where the anger's really coming from, um, in a lot of fronts. Mike, your 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 uh, comments on this, and we'll get to a clip. yeah. It really creates bad incentives. I mean, that at the end of the day is the biggest problem. Like, how many articles have we written on stock buybacks? Right, a dozen, because stock buybacks are what create these problems. Instead of investing money in employees, in their factories, in production, in innovation, companies are just buying back stock to boost the price of the stock. It's wasted money. And at the end of the day, they have to lay off employees because they didn't do all those innovative things that they could have done with the money, mm-hmm. right? It also, what does it do? It boosts markets and everyone thinks the Fed has the back. So it creates this speculation and speculation mania that we have now where investors just want to buy AMC. They want to buy Bitcoin. They're not investing into the future of this country, the Mm -hmm. the future economy. They are basically using their capital to buy buy low and sell high. No, it's not even that. I mean, I I don't disagree with your point, but it's, it's not even that. I mean. You know, the the issue is, is really from this wealth inequality point, this is why you see these calls for socialism, right? More free money. I need free college. I need free this, free that. Right. That's that's the, the cause of all this, right? right? I mean, you know, if people were happy with their lifestyle, if people were happy with their incomes and their jobs and, right. and you know, they were making ends meet and, and they were able to save a little bit of money, they don't have to, they wouldn't have to speculate markets trying to, to, to get some little advantage here, right? They would just be saving some money. They'd be happy, and you wouldn't have this whole social dynamic. You wouldn't have these calls for socialism, and um, you know all, and and this, you know, uh, you know this whole idea of privilege, one group over another. I mean, you know, we are completely inverting the the entire structure of the U.S. economy because of this wealth inequality, and and you can drive it right back to what the Fed's been doing, and that was really kind of Stiglitz's point. Right. Right. And, Brent, Hart, I hate to skip ahead a little, but can we go to clip six and seven? Actually, they can't clip- get, we, yeah, we can't do that because uh, the, the thing is, uh, I wanted to come back. And before we get there, I wanted to jump on what you just said, though, about speculation, because really that's part of this whole market dynamic. I didn't, you know, your point about speculation and people buying AMC and GameStop, et cetera, are very important because that's what this has done. And that's something that. You know, um, Elarian and both Richard Fisher and Elarian were talking about. I was on the trade floor. I remember 
Chairman Bernanke saying that he would taper. First, we had to figure out what does taper mean? And the minute people realized what taper meant, which is the, that the Fed would step back from buying all these securities, and even though the Fed said it's going to be gradual, it's going to be measured, the markets had a massive tantrum. The market selling off after Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke said that the central bank could start tapering its economic... The markets went into a fit. Became dysfunctional. It was known as the taper tantrum. Well, we all know it. When Ben Bernanke talks or the Federal Reserve speaks, the markets listen. Taper tantrum. Markets are like little kids. They want candy, and the minute you try to take the candy away, they have a tantrum. That's <laughs> right. But but again, this and and to your point, Mike. Um, also, this led right into as we as you said, we've written probably 10, 12 articles on you know, buybacks. And this is exactly what uh, Dion Rabon said as well. As a corporation, you realize all that matters is the stock price. So what do we have to do to increase the stock price? And more often that is buying back the stock. So it used to be the Fed would lower interest rates. Um, businesses would then take on more debt. They would use that debt to hire more workers, build more machines and more factories. Now what happens is the Federal Reserve lowers interest rates. Businesses use that to go out and borrow more money, but they use that money to buy back stock and invest in technology that will eliminate workers and reduce employee headcounts. Uh, they use that money to give the CEO and other corporate officers big bonuses, and then eventually issue more debt and buy back more stock. So it's this endless cycle of things that are designed to increase the stock price rather than improve the actual company. And there you have it. And, and that's, that's exactly your point that you were making is that all this money, it didn't go into actually creating better economic prosperity for anyone. It went into right. making the rich richer and, and corporations more successful. But look, this is also part of Wall Street's fault, right? We keep raising earnings estimates. And the only way these companies can beat earnings estimates in a lot of cases is to buy back stock because revenue growth, and this is really kind of the key driver. Um, we've written articles on this. You know, operating earnings are up 400%. Revenue growth since the peak of the market in 2007 is only up 60%. So, right. you know, we're, and that's, and, and revenue comes from the economy. So clearly the economy is not functioning. And stock buybacks are the way that, that we can translate a dollar's worth of, of sales into $10 worth of earnings. And, right. and that's the problem. Right. And how are CEOs incented? They're incented by the stock price. They get paid in stock mm -hmm. options and stock. So they don't care what they they don't care about their company 10 years from now. They don't care about their employees. They care about boosting the price of the stock. And the best way to do that is become a big buyer of the stock. Right. J, uh, JP Morgan CEO, Jamie Dimon, just yesterday, right. granting himself, you know, one and a half million stock options at JP Morgan with a strike of 148. So over the next couple of years, if he can get the stock price to go up by stock buybacks, he's going to make millions upon millions of dollars on those stock options that were given to him that he granted to himself as CEO and chairman of the company. That's a, that's a job if you can get it. That's the job you want. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, but, and, uh, but yeah, you wanted to go to, to, to talking about Sheila Bear as well. But this really kind of goes back to, again, this, this continuation of stock buybacks and, and this kind of illusion that we've put into the markets. Right, Mike? Yeah. And Sheila Bear used to run the FDIC. And we're talking about heavy hitters here that are telling us a story 
that is, you know, it's starting to get a little scary about how the economy is run. So why don't we listen to Sheila? Buybacks used to, it's just another example of things that used to be viewed as kind of, ooh, you know, just going mainstream. Sheila Baer, a former top banking regulator, was issuing public warnings at the time that the Fed was incentivizing bad behavior on Wall Street, despite its best intentions. I can't fault the company so much because these interest rate, this interest rate environment creates very strong economic incentives to do exactly what they're doing. It's hard to create a new product. It's hard to come up with a new idea for a service. It's hard to build a plant and hire people and run the organization. It's real easy to issue some debt and pay it out to your shareholders to goose your share price. That's real easy to do, but it doesn't create real wealth. It doesn't create real opportunity. It doesn't create jobs. It doesn't improve the labor market. But it's just another example of how these very low interest rates have really distorted economic activity and, and frankly been a drag on our economic growth, not a benefit. And, you know, that's really the crux of it. As much as we want to believe that, you know, everything's doing right. And look, if you're invested in the stock market, hey, it, it feels great, right? I mean, market goes up every day, you're happy and, and it works great for you. And that, that's fantastic. You're in the top 10% of people that own 90% of the stock market. Awesome. Great. Um, the problem is for everybody else. And again, we go back to this whole conversation about this you know, you, you kind of look around and you go, well, why are all these people so upset? Why are we all rioting and coming up with excuses to, you know, burn things down and, and create arguments and, you know, destroy things in our country? Why are we doing that? This is why. I mean, they're upset. They, they don't know why they're upset, but they're upset because of wealth inequality. Um, we'll be right back after the break. Uh, we'll wrap up our conversation with Michael Leibowitz. We've got some other stuff to get into, particularly um, Jeremy Grantham and Howard Marks on the Fed put. Um, and the bailing out of investors and the creation of moral hazard. We've got Peter Fisher on questioning the latest round of QE and, of course, the whole financial mania and the epic mistake that this all winds up being eventually down the road. All that coming up right after the break. Stick around. Don't go away. Out of my head, boy, your loving is all I think about. I just can't get you out of my head. Boy, it's more than I dare to think about. Listening to the Real Investment Show. Declare your financial independence. Our next candid coffee can liberate you from the stale rules touted by mainstream financial media. Know the enemies of your wealth and fight them on your terms. We'll arm you with the information you need at our next candid coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff. Saturday, July 24th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Financial Independence Candid Coffee with Ratliff. And Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Come shake your body, baby, do the conga. No, you can't control yourself any longer. Come shake your body, baby, do the conga. No, you can't control yourself any longer. And welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Michael Lubitz joining me this morning on The Real Investment Show, talking a little bit about the Fed, QE, and this recent, uh, recent special on PBS Frontline talking about the Fed and QE and it was the entire hour special was fantastic to listen to but we've taken out some of the clips for you this morning just to really kind of get to the heart of some of the matters that we've written about and talked about for a while and as Mike said earlier you know us schmoes don't really count too much but you know to hear it from some of the you know the, the main gurus on Wall Street and in the system 
uh, just helps reinforce uh, the views that we've been talking about and writing about now, you know, for the last couple of years. Um, let's start with uh, How uh, Jeremy Grantham and Howard Marks on the Fed put. Over the years, we've been trained to believe that the Fed is on our side. What the Fed has trained us to believe is that if we make a bet in the market and we win, we're on our own. We get to keep the profits. If we lose, they will bend every effort and every dollar they can get their hands on one way or another uh, to bail us out. This is asymmetry of the most splendid kind. Hey, Speeds, go ahead and clap it off, please. Billionaire bond investor Howard Marks called the Fed out at the time, saying it was undercutting the way the free market is supposed to work. There are negative ramifications to this, one called moral hazard, uh, which means uh, uh, conditioning uh, people to believe that if there's a problem, the government will bail you out. And if people really believe that, then there's no downside to risky behavior. Because if there's a problem, it won't fall on you, you'll get bailed out. If you, if you play it aggressively and, and succeed, you make money. If you play it uh, uh, aggressively and fail, you'll get bailed out. So has moral hazard gotten worse as a result of, of this bailout? There's no barometer of moral hazard, uh, so I can't give you a reading. All I can say is that for the last year or so, uh, risk-taking has been rewarded, and that tends to bring on more risk-taking. He says there's no barometer of, of moral hazard, and I, I think that's incorrect. I think you can definitely take a look at what's happening, for instance, in the triple C credit junk bond market as a barometer of risk taking and to see you know what people are are buying in terms of triple C credits which are one step above actual default and the yields that they're getting paid for that as a barometer of risk taking and, and a direct measure of moral hazard in the markets created by the Fed. Okay. Equity valuations, SPACs, AMC, GameStop, stocks like that. Yep. These cryptocurrencies that are just a joke that all of a sudden become multi-billion dollar entities. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's very easy to measure, actually. Well, let's 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 jump to Peter Fisher um, on clip eight uh, talking about really he's he's an ex-Fed me uh, member and, you know, was on the inside of all this and and his views on really kind of questioning the latest round of QE. Last March, the Fed announced that they've just decided it's going to be the right thing to do to drive 100 miles an hour. Okay, your judgment call. A year later, they're still driving 100 miles an hour. <laughs> and you ask them, why exactly are you driving 100 miles an hour now? Say, well, you know, it was a good idea last March, and we don't want to change things too quickly, and so, yeah, we just think it's a really good idea. Peter Fisher spent years at the New York Federal Reserve and at BlackRock, the largest asset management firm in the world. It's pretty basic in, in medicine that our doctor may give us a drug, which in a small punt, punchy dose for a brief period of time might help us recover from whatever ails us. But that the same medicine, the same drug taken in massive doses over long periods of time might kill us or make us ill or have perverse side effects. When I look out at what's been going on the last six months, I see financial mania. I don't know what the right value of some companies is, but when they change by 50% in six months, I think we should all recognize, boy, that's hard to estimate the value of that. 
If it's 50% higher now than it was six months ago, I guess we were pretty bad on estimating its value six months ago. I assume you're somebody who has assets, who's invested, um, and that this has been a good period for someone like you, in part because you own assets. The Fed having pumped asset prices to historically high levels doesn't make me feel comfortable. I'll be, I feel as anxious today as I've ever felt about the financial world because of my belief that the Fed has been pumping up asset prices in a way that is creating a bit of an illusion. I think the odds are now sort of one in three, very high, that we will look at this as an epic mistake and one of the great financial calamities of all time. And, and that's really kind of the point here is that, you know, we've, you know, again, when you start looking at some of these stocks, and again, to your point, Mike, AMC, GameStop, others, you know, it would seem to me that people that are managing our monetary policy and are trying to avoid catastrophic collapses and asset prices and catastrophic risks to the economy would certainly be stepping back going, you know what? Maybe instead of inflating an, a, another asset bubble, maybe we should start talking about tapering and slowing down on QE. Yes, asset prices are going to fall. Yes, we're going to have some impact on the economy. But you have the ability to try to talk markets down in a way that doesn't lead to an out, outright crash. Because if you don't, ultimately something happens. You have a disruption in the credit markets and you have a 50% plunge in stock prices that you can't control. You know, it's 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 kind of an interesting paradox that the Fed has put themselves into. It's the trap. We always talk about this trap. They indirectly pushed valuations of everything. It's not just stocks. It's it's junk bonds. It's corporate bonds. It's it's just about every financial assets to levels that are inherently unstable because they're not supported by the underlying fundamentals. Right. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about our plane is flying at 50, 60,000 feet. And it will drop to 30,000 feet at some point. We don't know when or how, but 50, 60,000 feet is not the natural flying altitude. Mm -hmm. And this is all because of the Fed and what they promote. And, you know, we just heard it from ex-Fed officials, from government officials, from the largest bond, bond and stock managers in the world. Right. I mean, this is a problem. It's creating consequences. And as investors, this is why we have to talk about the Fed all the time. I don't want to be the Fed expert, <laughs> right? We shouldn't need a Fed expert. We should able, be able to read a, a couple articles in a Wall Street Journal once every couple of weeks so we kind of have a feel for what the Fed's doing. But if you want to invest in these markets, you better understand the Fed because they are by far the largest factor at this point. Exactly. And this, this is, uh, let's conclude with Jeremy Grantham talking about, the, you know, it's not just the stock market that we're talking about. And we've talked about this before. It's like, you know, we've got housing prices at record highs, but yet the Fed's still buying $40 billion a month in mortgages. So, you know, and this is Jeremy Grantham talking about the consequences of not just QE and the stock market, but it's created multiple asset bubbles. They have the housing market, the stock market, and the bond market all overpriced at the same time. And they will not be able to prevent, sooner or later, the asset prices coming back down. So we are playing with fire because we have the three great asset classes moving into bubble territory simultaneously. 
And and that's right. You know, you've you've you know, it's one thing when you have a dot com bubble. It's another thing when you have a real estate bubble. You know, that's a a controllable event to some degree. Yes, you're going to have some impact on the on that particular area of the market. But now the problem is you've created this bubble across multiple asset classes, and it's not just in, you know, housing and bonds and stocks. It's in a variety of assets really uh, across the board. And, you know, it was cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency has already gone through its, its bursting of its bubble. And the question is only really a function of time until we see the same type of decline in other assets. It's only a question of what triggers it. Right. Lumber. Lumber had a bubble, yep. right? I mean, it's right. That's the crux of this whole thing is that they're bubbles. Everything is a bubble now and turning into a bubble. And it's one thing when it's stocks and bonds. Mm -hmm. It's another thing when it's housing because that has a much more direct effect on a real economy. And look, we see it. House prices don't go up 20% in a year under any kind of normal situation, especially when you're in a pandemic and a recession. Right. Right. What does that tell you? Well, and again, that's the, you know, and again, you know, we had this, um, this, you know, this pandemic driven shutdown of the economy. And, you know, yes, technically we had a recession and, you know, OK, we this recession lasted a whopping three months, uh, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research. But the problem is, is that we've written articles on this before about why recessions are a good thing. Right. Recessions reverse a lot of these overvaluations, they reverse a lot of the speculation, they reverse a lot of these other issues that are occurring in the markets, but we didn't allow, and again, this has been the problem with the Fed really since 2008, is not letting a recession occur, not letting, and when the recession does occur, not letting it do its normal Darwinian process of reducing excess debt and speculation in the markets, getting rid of zombie companies they need that need to go out of business to allow new innovation to come in. You know, our economy would actually be a lot stronger and a lot healthier if the Fed would leave things alone. And yes, it would be painful in the short term. Yes, people would lose money. People would lose their houses. People would lose their businesses. But that's part of capitalism. And it sounds terrible, I know, but that's how capitalism works. But it leads to a healthier economic environment. Look, every year we have massive forest fires out in California because California has mitigated the, the, the management, their forest management, for a whole variety of reasons, which leads to a lot of other problems of dry tinder on the ground, et cetera, that lead to these forest fires. What those forest fires are doing are the natural process of cleansing the environment that provides for, ultimately, a healthier forest. And that's where we wind up here today is not managing our economy properly. And so we have a weaker economy because of it. That wraps up the show for today. Michael Leibowitz, thank you so much. Great conversation today. We'll be back, uh, of course, tomorrow with Financial Fitness Friday. Be sure and tune in there. And uh, be sure to get by our, web, our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Send us your questions, comments, emails, get our latest blog post, new website getting ready to launch as well. So we're excited about that for you. Realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll see you tomorrow. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world. Hey, thanks for watching today's episode with Michael Ewitz and myself on the Fed, but also watch yesterday's episode on buying the dip.